Book Four, Chapters Nine and Ten of Joseph Andrews. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Dennis Sayers. Joseph Andrews by Henry Fielding. Book Four, Chapter Nine. A visit which the polite Lady Booby and her polite friend paid to the parson. The Lady Booby had no sooner had an account from the gentleman of his meeting a wonderful beauty near her house, and perceived the raptures with which he spoke of her, than immediately concluding it must be Fanny, she began to meditate a design of bringing them better acquainted, and to entertain hopes that the fine clothes, presents, and promises of this youth would prevail upon her to abandon Joseph. She therefore proposed to her company a walk in the fields before dinner, when she led them towards Mr. Adams' house, and, as she approached it, told them, if they pleased, she would divert them with one of the most ridiculous sights they had ever seen, which was an old foolish parson, who, she said, laughing, kept a wife and six brats on a salary of about twenty pounds a year, <laughs> adding that there was not such another ragged family in the parish. They all readily agreed to this visit, and arrived whilst Mrs. Adams was declaiming, as in the last chapter. Beau Didapper, which was the name of the young gentleman we have seen riding towards Lady Boobies, with his cane, mimicked the rap of a London footman at the door. The people within, namely Adams, his wife and three children, Joseph, Fanny, and the peddler, were all thrown into confusion by his knock. But Adams went directly to the door, which, being opened, the Lady Booby and her company walked in, and were received by the parson with about two hundred bows, and by his wife with as many curtsies, the latter telling the lady she was ashamed to be seen in such a pickle, and that her house was in such a litter, but that if she had expected such an honour from her ladyship, she should have found her in a better manner. The parson made no apologies, though he was in his half-cassock and a flannel nightcap. He said they were heartily welcome to his poor cottage, and turning to Mr. Didapper, cried out, Non mea renidit in domo lacunar. The beau answered, he did not understand Welsh, at which the parson stared, and made no reply. Mr. Didapper, or Beau Didapper, was a young gentleman of about four foot five inches in height. He wore his own hair, though the scarcity of it might have given him sufficient excuse for a periwig. His face was thin and pale, the shape of his body and legs, none of the best, for he had very narrow shoulders, and no calf, and his gait might more properly be called hopping than walking. The qualifications of his mind were well adapted to his person. We shall handle them first negatively. 
he was not entirely ignorant, for he could talk a little French and sing two or three Italian songs. He had lived too much in the world to be bashful, and too much at court to be proud. He seemed not much inclined to avarice, for he was profuse in his expenses. Nor had he all the features of prodigality, for he never gave a shilling. No hater of women, for he always dangled after them, yet so little subject to lust, that he had, among those who knew him best, the character of great moderation in his pleasures, no drinker of wine, nor so addicted to passion, but that a hot word or two from an adversary made him immediately cool. Now, to give him only a dash or two on the affirmative side, though he was born to an immense fortune, he chose for the pitiful and dirty consideration of a place of little consequence, to depend entirely on the will of a fellow whom they call a great man, who treated him with the utmost disrespect, and exacted of him a plenary obedience to his commands, which he implicitly submitted to, at the expense of his conscience, his honour, and of his country, in which he had himself so very large a share. And, to finish his character, as he was entirely well satisfied with his own person and parts, so he was very apt to ridicule and laugh at any imperfection in another. Such was the little person, or rather thing, that hopped after Lady Booby into Mr. Adam's kitchen. The parson and his company retreated from the chimney-side, where they had been seated, to give room to the lady in hers. Instead of returning any of the curtsies or extraordinary civility of Mrs. Adams, the lady, turning to Mr. Booby, cried out, Quel bête, quel animal! And presently, after discovering Fanny, for she did not need the circumstance of her standing by Joseph to assure the identity of her person, she asked the beau whether he did not think her a pretty girl. "'Begad, madam,' answered he, "'tis the very same I met.' "'I did not imagine,' replied the lady, "'you had so good a taste. "'Because I never liked you, I warrant,' cries the beau. "'Ridiculous,' said she, "'you know you was always my aversion.' I would never mention aversion, answered the beau, with that face, footnote, lest this should appear unnatural to some readers, we think proper to acquaint them that it is taken verbatim from very polite conversation. <clears throat> Dear Lady Booby, wash your face before you mention aversion. I beseech you. He then laughed, and turned about to coquet it with Fanny. Mrs. Adams had been all this time begging and praying the ladies to sit down, a favour which she at last obtained, the little boy to whom the accident had happened, still keeping his place by the fire, 
was chid by his mother for not being more mannerly. But Lady Booby took his part, and commending his beauty, told the parson he was his very picture. She then, seeing a book in his hand, asked if he could read. Yes, cried Adams, a little Latin, madam. He is just got into quae genus. A fig for quare genius, answered she. Let me hear him read a little English. Lege dick lege, said Adams, but the boy made no answer, till he saw the parson knit his brows, and then cried, I don't understand you, father. How, boy, says Adams, what doth lego make in the imperative mood? Legito doth it not? Yes, answered Dick. And what besides? asked the father. Lecky, quoth the son, after some hesitation. A good boy, says the father. And now, child, what is the English of lego? To which the boy, after long puzzling, answered, he could not tell. How? cries Adams in a passion. What? Hath the water washed away your learning? Why, what is Latin for the English verb read? Consider before you speak. The child considered some time, and then the parson cried twice or thrice, Le, le, Dick answered, Lego, very well. And then what is the English, says the parson, of the verb Lego? To read, cried Dick. Very well, said the parson. A good boy. You can do well if you will take pains. I assure your ladyship, he is not much above eight years old, and is out of his propria que maribus already. Come, Dick, read to her ladyship, which she again desiring, in order to give the bow time and opportunity with Fanny, Dick began as in the following chapter. Chapter 10. The History of Two Friends, which may afford an useful lesson to all those persons who happen to take up their residence in married families. Leonard and Paul were two friends. Pronounce it, Leonard, child, cried the parson. Pray, Mr. Adams, says Lady Booby, let your son read without interruption. Dick then proceeded. Leonard and Paul were two friends, who, having been educated together at the same school, commenced a friendship which they preserved a long time for each other. It was so deeply fixed in both their minds that a long absence, during which they had maintained no correspondence, did not eradicate nor lessen it, but it revived in all its force at their first meeting, which was not till after fifteen years' absence, most of which time Leonard had spent in the East Indi Indies. Pronounce it short. Indies, says Adams. Pray, sir, be quiet, says the lady. The boy repeated, in the East Indies, whilst Paul had served his king and country in the army, 
in which different services they had found such different success, that Leonard was now married, and retired with a fortune of thirty thousand pounds, and Paul was arrived to the degree of a lieutenant of foot, and was not worth a single shilling. The regiment in which Paul was stationed happened to be ordered into quarters, within a small distance from the estate, which Leonard had purchased, and where he was settled. This latter, who was now become a country gentleman, and a justice of peace, came to attend the quarter sessions in the town where his old friend was quartered, soon after his arrival. Some affair in which a soldier was concerned, occasioned Paul to attend the justices. Manhood and time, and the change of climate, had so much altered Leonard, that Paul did not immediately recollect the features of his old acquaintance. But it was otherwise with Leonard. He knew Paul the moment he saw him, nor could he contain himself from quitting the bench and running hastily to embrace him. Paul stood at first a little surprised, but had soon sufficient information from his friend, whom he no sooner remembered, than he returned his embrace with a passion which made many of the spectators laugh, and gave to some few a much higher and more agreeable sensation. Not to detain the reader with minute circumstances, Leonard insisted on his friends returning with him to his house that evening, which request was complied with, and leave for a month's absence for Paul obtained of the commanding officer. If it was possible for any circumstance to give any addition to the happiness which Paul proposed in this visit, he received that additional pleasure by finding on his arrival at his friend's house that his lady was an old acquaintance which he had formerly contracted at his quarters, and who had always appeared to be of a most agreeable temper, a character she had ever maintained among her intimates, being of that number every individual of which is called quite the best sort of woman in the world. But good as this lady was, she was still a woman, that is to say, an angel, and not an angel. "'You must mistake, child,' cries the parson, "'for you read nonsense.' "'It is so in the book,' answered the son. Mr. Adams was then silenced by authority, and Dick proceeded. "'For though her person was of that kind to which men attribute the name of angel, yet in her mind she was perfectly woman, of which a great deal of obstinacy gave the most remarkable and perhaps most pernicious instance. A day or two passed after Paul's arrival, before any instances of this appeared. But it was impossible to conceal it long. Both she and her husband soon lost all apprehension from their friend's presence, and fell to their disputes with as much vigour as ever. These were still pursued with the utmost ardour and eagerness, however trifling the causes were whence they first arose. Nay, however incredible it may seem, 
the little consequence of the matter in debate was frequently given as a reason for the fierceness of the contention as thus if you loved me sure you would never dispute with me such a trifle as this the answer to which is very obvious for the argument would hold equally on both sides and was constantly retorted with some addition as i am sure i have much more reason to say so who am in the right during all these disputes paul always kept strict silence and preserved an even countenance without showing the least visible inclination to either party one day however when madame had left the room in a violent fury leonard could not refrain from referring his cause to his friend was ever anything so unreasonable says he as this woman what shall i do with her i dote on her to distraction nor have i any cause to complain of more than this obstinacy in her temper whatever she asserts she will maintain against all the reason and conviction in the world pray give me your advice first says paul i will give my opinion which is flatly that you are in the wrong for supposing she is in the wrong was the subject of your contention any ways material what signified it whether you was married in a red or yellow waistcoat for that was your dispute now suppose she was mistaken as you love her you say so tenderly and i believe she deserves it would it not have been wiser to have yielded though you certainly knew yourself in the right than to give either her or yourself any uneasiness for my own part if ever i marry i am resolved to enter into an agreement with my wife that in all disputes especially about trifles that party who is most convinced they are right shall always surrender the victory by which means we shall both be forward to give up the cause i own said leonard my dear friend shaking him by the hand there is great truth and reason in what you say and i will for the future endeavour to follow your advice they soon after broke up the conversation and leonard going to his wife and asked her pardon and told her his friend had convinced him he had been in the wrong she immediately began a vast encomium on paul in which he seconded her and both agreed he was the worthiest and wisest man on earth when next they met which was at supper though she had promised not to mention what her husband told her she could not forbear casting the kindest and most affectionate looks on paul and asked him with the sweetest voice whether she should help him to some potted woodcock potted partridge my dear you mean says the husband my dear says she i asked your friend if he will eat any potted woodcock and i am sure i must know who potted it <clears throat> i think i should know too who shot them replied the husband and i am convinced that i have not seen a woodcock this year however though i know i am in the right 
I submit, and the potted partridge is potted woodcock, if you desire to have it so. Hmm. It is equal to me, says she, whether it is one or the other, but you would persuade one out of one's senses. To be sure, you are always in the right in your own opinion, but your friend, I believe, knows which he is eating. Paul answered nothing, and the dispute continued, as usual, the greatest part of the evening. The next morning the lady, accidentally meeting Paul, and being convinced he was her friend, and on her side, accosted him thus. I am certain, sir, you have long since wondered at the unreasonableness of my husband. He is indeed in other respects a good sort of man, but so positive that no woman but one of my complying temper could possibly live with him. Why, last night, now, was ever any creature so unreasonable? I am certain you must condemn him. Pray answer me, was he not in the wrong? Paul, after a short silence, spoke as follows. I am sorry, madam, that as good manners obliges me to answer against my will, so an adherence to truth forces me to declare myself of a different opinion. To be plain and honest, you was entirely in the wrong, the cause I own not worth disputing, but the bird was undoubtedly a partridge. Oh, sir, replied the lady, I cannot possibly help your taste. Madam, returned Paul, that is very little material, for had it been otherwise, a husband might have expected submission. Indeed, sir, says she, I assure you. Yes, madam, cried he, he might, from a person of your excellent understanding, and, pardon me for saying, such a condescension would have shown a superiority of sense, even to your husband himself. But, dear sir, said she, why should I submit when I am in the right? For that very reason, answered he, it would be the greatest instance of affection imaginable. For can anything be a greater object of our compassion than a person we love in the wrong? Ay, but I should endeavour, said she, to set him right. Pardon me, madam, answered Paul, I will apply to your own experience, if you ever found your arguments had that effect. The more our judgments err, the less we are willing to own it. For my own part, I have always observed the persons who maintain the worst side in any contest are the warmest. Why, says she, I must confess there is truth in what you say, and I will endeavour to practice it. The husband then coming in, Paul departed, and Leonard, approaching his wife with an air of good humour, told her he was sorry for their foolish dispute last night. But he was now convinced of his error. She answered, smiling, she believed she owed his condescension 
to his complacence, that she was ashamed to think a word had passed on so silly an occasion, especially as she was satisfied she had been mistaken. A little contention followed, but with the utmost good will to each other, and was concluded by her asserting that Paul had thoroughly convinced her she had been in the wrong, upon which they both united in the praises of their common friend. Paul now passed his time with great satisfaction, these disputes being much less frequent, as well as shorter than usual. But the devil, or some unlucky accident in which perhaps the devil had no hand, shortly put an end to his happiness. He was now eternally the private referee of every difference, in which, after having perfectly, as he thought, established the doctrine of submission, he never scrupled to assure both privately that they were in the right in every argument, as before he had followed the contrary method. One day a violent litigation happened in his absence, and both parties agreed to refer it to his decision. The husband, professing himself sure the decision would be in his favour, the wife answered, he might be mistaken, for she believed his friend was convinced how seldom she was to blame, and that if he knew all, the husband replied, my dear, I have no desire of any retrospect, but I believe if you knew all too, you would not imagine, my friend, so entirely on your side. Nay, says she, since you provoke me, I will mention one instance. You may remember our dispute about sending Jackie to school in cold weather, which point I gave up to you from mere compassion, knowing myself to be in the right. And Paul himself told me afterwards he thought me so. My dear, replied the husband, I will not scruple your veracity, but I assure you solemnly, on my applying to him, he gave it absolutely on my side, and said he would have acted in the same manner. They then proceeded to produce numberless other instances, in all which Paul had, on vows of secrecy, given his opinion on both sides. In the conclusion, both believing each other, they fell severely on the treachery of Paul, and agreed that he had been the occasion of almost every dispute which had fallen out between them. They then became extremely loving, and so full of condescension on both sides, that they vied with each other in censuring their own conduct, and jointly vented their indignation on Paul, whom the wife, fearing a bloody consequence, earnestly entreated her husband to suffer quietly to depart the next day, which was the time fixed for his return to quarters, and then drop his acquaintance. However ungenerous this behaviour in Leonard may be esteemed, his wife obtained a promise from him, though with difficulty, to follow her advice. But they both expressed such unusual coldness that day to Paul, that he, who was quick of apprehension, taking Leonard aside, 
pressed him so home that he at last discovered the secret. Paul acknowledged the truth, but told him the design with which he had done it, to which the other answered he would have acted more friendly to have let him into the whole design, for that he might have assured himself of his secrecy. Paul replied with some indignation, he had given him a sufficient proof how capable he was of concealing a secret from his wife. Leonard returned with some warmth. He had more reason to upbraid him, for that he had caused most of the quarrels between them by his strange conduct, and might, if they had not discovered the affair to each other, have been the occasion of their separation. Paul then said, Something now happened which put a stop to Dick's reading, and of which we shall treat in the next chapter. End of Book 4, Chapters 9 and 10 Read by Dennis Sayers in Modesto, California For LibriVox